Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Subversive Studies Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Glenn. Today, I'm joined by Manon Hedenborg-White, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at Södertorn University in Sweden and guest researcher at the Center for the History of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents at the University of Amsterdam. Her areas of interest include contemporary occultism, Western esotericism, gender, and sexuality. Dr. Hedenborg White's forthcoming book, The Eloquent Blood, The Goddess Babylon and the Construction of Femininities in Western Esotericism, due later this year from Oxford University Press, is one of the primary topics of exploration and conversation for us today, along with her Thelemic Women's History Project and a chapter she wrote entitled The Other Woman, Babylon and the Scarlet Woman in Kenneth Grant's Typhonian Trilogies in the recently published Servants of the Star and Snake, Essays in Honor of Kenneth and Steffi Grant, edited by Enrique Bogdan and published by Starfire. We discuss how the discourse around the goddess Babylon both reproduces and challenges hegemonic notions of femininity, theory of feminine sexuality that engages seriously both pleasure and danger, the recurring link between sexual liberation and the larger goals of social, political, or psychological liberation, the ways in which the seemingly marginalized, deviant, and dissenting reveals much about dominant culture, contemporary interpretations of Babylon questioning binary and biologistic conceptions of gender, constructing femininities, femininity in ways that are explicitly inclusive of transgender and genderqueer experience, and many of the historical figures that have been influential in bringing forth this Babylon discourse into our world today, and much more. In the show notes are ways that you can follow Manon's work online, as well as uh, links to some further sources you can explore about the goddess Babylon, some of which we talk about, a few of which we didn't talk about, sort of bonus material there. Um, because there's a lot actually out there, and I think some of you might be familiar, so this might be new to some of you, but I have a feeling that it is going to be an episode that a lot of people are going to be uh, interested in. So as always, thanks for listening. Please feel free to share with anyone you think would be excited to listen. Subscribe and the like. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And without further ado... Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Manon Hedenborg-White. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time and uh, appreciated reading uh, a bit of your work and getting a bit of a, of a flavor of it. Well, I'm glad you uh, found it helpful. Yeah. Um, so I thought we can begin simply with Babylon. Um, your forthcoming book, the Eloquent Blood, The Goddess Babylon, and the Construction of Femininities in Western Esotericism is a study on what you call Babylon Discourse. And um, you write that it, it aims to analyze the changing construction of femininities and feminine sexuality in interpretations of Babylon, as well as to understand how the discourse around the goddess both reproduces and challenges hegemonic notions of femininity and asks the question whether the Babylon discourse suggests alternative ways of inhabiting gender and sexuality. So that's perhaps a bit of an overview of some of the places we we're headed, but it seems important to start, you know, just for for listeners who may or may not have familiarity in this area, um, who is the goddess Babylon? Okay, so that is a 
question that I could make either very big or quite specific. I'm going to try to make it quite specific as I have heard that the hallmark of a good, uh, a good academic, a good scholar and a good teacher is being able to summarize and simplify. So this is, of course, a question that took me about four to 500 pages to answer in my, in my book. But in a nutshell, Babylon is one of the most important deities or the most important female deities in the religion Thelema, which was founded in 1904 by the British occultist Alistair Crowley. And Crowley based his idea of Babylon on a very positive reinterpretation of the horror of Babylon from the book of Revelation in the Bible, where she's this libidinous, drunk, scarlet-clad woman who rides the beast, essentially. And she's a very negative symbol in the Bible, but Crowley turned that on its head. So in the most concrete sense, Babylon represents the sacredness of liberated female sexuality, you could say. Uh, and Crowley connected Babylon also to an office that he called the Scarlet Woman, which is a title that he gave to some of his most uh, important female lovers and disciples. So in the idea of the Scarlet Woman, Crowley sort of constructed this kind of Thelemic feminine ideal, what he thought that the new Thelemic woman should be like. And one of the most important aspects of that female role was to be sexually liberated and sexually shameless. But this being Crowley, Babylon also has a deeper function, a more sort of abstract mystical function. So Crowley designed a staged system of initiation, a, um, an initiatory system where the individual seeker goes from being a completely normal, unenlightened man or woman to uh, realizing what their purpose in life is to becoming gradually and progressively more and more um, closer and closer to the divine, essentially uh, culminating in the complete identification of the individual with the ultimate divine. And one of the final stages in that initiatory hierarchy is what Crowley calls the crossing of the abyss. And the abyss is this like terrifying void of delusion and meaninglessness and just general chaos, which separates the divine from the manifested, the divine from that which uh, isn't divine, essentially, uh, or is at least sort of lower on the hierarchy of, of things. And in order to get past the abyss, in order to survive, you have to completely sacrifice your ego, becoming completely receptive to everything in a sense. And Babylon is linked to that procedure. Babylon, in Crowley's view, accepts everyone who is willing to offer themselves completely, annihilating their ego. Uh, and he has a metaphor for this, which is draining your blood into Babylon's cup. So she's very clearly linked to that. So by draining your blood into Babylon's cup, you become reborn on the other side as a master of the temple. And that's one of the final stages of initiation in Crowley's system. So in a sense, she symbolizes this sort of spiritual attitude or, or magical formula that is required by anyone who wants to cross the abyss. That ability to unite passionately with all of existence without discrimination. So in this more abstract, metaphysical, mystical sense, Babylon signifies the attitude of passionate union with the all and complete receptivity towards the all. And this is also in a very sexual sense, again, this being Crowley. So he's got this, uh, this metaphor of kind of dying and re being reborn as one way of describing the crossing of the abyss, but he also describes it in sexual terms uh, and says that the loss of the ego can also be compared to the loss of individuality that you experience in sexual union with your beloved, essentially. So that's what Babylon is. Yeah, okay, wonderful. And we'll... we'll you know, we're going to kind of try to explore a few of the different figures that have worked um, with and written about this goddess. And I think it's interesting just to consider, you know, I think one of the themes that I feel like is running through your work is this sort of, um, yeah, like, I, I guess one thing that comes to mind is that the, the Babylon discourse is still very much unfolding. That's how it seems to me right now. Mm. And, and, you know, um, all of this, you know, it's relatively recent history in terms of, you know, beginning with Crowley's kind of re, uh, reframing and then subsequently, you know, we'll talk further about how it's kind of unfolded, but 
you know, and then there's been some contemporary, uh, you know, in, in what recent history is, you know, the sort of occult revival, um, Peter Gray's book, uh, The Red Goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I think one thing that's really interesting is that, yeah, I, th- I just feel like we haven't, um, it's all still being kind of unpacked and unraveled. And, and um, yeah, I feel like you're just from the segments that I had the opportunity to read, you know, that, that um, your voice and your study in this, in this discourse um, is really, uh, feel, I don't know, just feels very important and, and um, you know, a, fresh and, and different. And so I think uh, particularly the sense of like, looking at both the problematic and helpful aspects of, you know, some of these figures like Crowley and hmm. Jack Parsons and, and Kenneth Grant and kind of acknowledging kind of both sides um, because oftentimes, you know, I think sometimes, sometimes someone like Crowley is either dismissed, you know, as, um, you know, being a completely problematic or misogynist figure or, um, or like kind of worshiped as, a master and 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 such so anyhow those are you know just some of the the things that come to mind for me as you're talking and you know as i was i've, I've been reading um some of these pieces mm. Mm. so before we get into some of the other f- figures like jack parsons and, and kenneth grant maybe we can just continue to look at some overarching themes around Babylon and in particular you know these are the kind of subversive um, elements and and I'm really interested in the ways in which um, this goddess really does feel to me like a timely manifestation of uh, like a force that our world needs and Mm -hmm. is is very valuable so you know I think we have both um, yeah there's there's kind of like some of these very niche occult um traditions and communities and and esoteric practices around her and and then um more academic studies but i feel like also you're really highlighting this like potent uh very timely relevant quality so you talk about a theory of feminine sexuality that engages seriously with both pleasure and danger that's really interesting to me. Um, also, the recurring link between sexual liberation and the larger goals of social, political, or psychological liberation, um, as well as the ways in which the seemingly marginalized, deviant, and dissenting reveals much about our dominant culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that's like a huge amount <laughs> to, to ask you about, but... Um, I don't know, just sort of overarching thematic reflections on any of these areas. Would you like mm-hmm. to? Yeah, say anything? yeah, definitely. And I do think, as you're saying, that this is quite a timely, um, timely topic to be talking about. It's 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 funny with this symbol that has such such a long history. But yeah, um, I think these three areas that you've highlighted here they go together quite well, and one thing that I think is really, really important and continues to be is an old, what has been an old dividing line in, in the feminist movement, in the women's movement, which concerns sexuality or specifically how feminists should approach the issue of sexuality or what the problem is with sexuality. Is the problem that women have been over-sexualized and are objectified and sort of forced to be sexual all the time? Or is the problem that women have been denied the right to be sexual and denied access to sexual pleasure and not been seen as sexual subjects whatsoever? And if we go back to the 19th century, to the first wave of feminism, to the suffragettes and that whole wave of the women's movement, most prominent feminists during that time fell sort of in the first, uh, in the first camp there. They, women were quite vulnerable on the sexual market for many reasons, uh, partly a lack of access to 
safe abortion procedures to safe reliable contraceptives, uh, the fact that marital rape was still legal, there was a rampant spread of sexual diseases uh, or sexually transmitted diseases. So a lot of feminist uh, advocates focused mainly on sexuality as, as a problem, as a danger to women. They weren't seeking so much to um, to celebrate female sexual pleasure or sexual desire. They were kind of trying to limit the downsides primarily. And won a few significant victories, such as raising the age of consent and, and things like that. Uh, and there were a few exceptions as well, but that was sort of the dominant trend during that time. If we move forward to second wave feminism, uh, there's a huge dividing line around sexuality. If we go back to the 60s, 70s and 80s, especially the 70s and 80s, uh, between feminists who um, who were very sort of adamant that we need to increase women's opportunities for being sexual in different ways and sort of instead of uh, moralizing over which types of expressions of sexuality are emancipatory or oppressive we need to sort of expand the range of female desire or feminine desire and feminine sexual pleasure. And there were also those who uh, were more sort of keen, again, to try to highlight the dangers of sexual violence, of sexual oppression. So there was this sort of uh, intra-feminist uh, tension or, or fight that was going on that we usually call the sex wars, whereas people like uh, Catherine McKinnon or Andrea Dworkin, for instance, said that pornography, BDSM, sex work, various types of expressions of sexuality are problematic, that rape is essentially kind of characteristic of nearly all heterosexual interactions, and who, who pushed that agenda very, very strongly. And then there were feminists who were sex radical or sex positive on the other side of the debate, like uh, people like Carol Vance or Joan Nessel or Audre Lorde, who felt that the radical feminists were moralistic and focused a bit too much maybe on male female oppression at the expense of other types of social hierarchies that uh, posit some forms of sexuality as more natural or more beneficial, uh, such as heteronormativity or the idea that um, sex should be done without tools or toys or, or things like that. And in my work, I'm inspired by sex radical feminist theorization. So what I try to do, inspired by theorists like, like Audre Lorde and Carol Vance and, and others who have followed in their footsteps, is to sort of continuously seek to question uh, norms that say that some forms of sexuality are more beneficial than others. And I try to not assume that any expression of sexuality between consenting adults, at least, is inherently oppressive or inherently liberating. But instead, I think that in all kinds of expressions of sexuality, whether we're talking about sex work or pornography or uh, BDSM or anything else, there is uh, the possibility for power, there's the possibility for inequality, but there's also the possibility for uh, resistance to power. And I think that's what it means for me to take seriously both the sort of the pleasure and danger aspects mm -hmm. of sexuality, essentially, not to, to be naive and to say that power doesn't exist, but also to say that uh, even where power exists, there is also the possibility for resistance to power. And I think that ties into the, um, the second area that you brought up there, the, the link between sexual liberation and sort of broader, broader forms of, of socio-political emancipation because this idea this idea that sexual liberation is tied to social emancipation that is something that thinkers like Crowley who was one of the pioneers of sexual magic he believed in that very very strongly he thought that sexual liberation is really key to uh, social emancipation and we see these sorts of ideas reoccurring in in the sexual revolution of the 1970s and and, and 1960s. And I mean, of course, this is a very optimistic view and one that can be questioned in a number of ways. But I also think it's, uh, it's important to take this idea of sexual liberation as a really fundamental thing seriously, and especially in terms of, of female sexual emancipation as well. Like if we go back to um, I think it was maybe 2009 or something, I want to say, Naomi Wolf wrote uh, a book about the vagina where she talks about uh, female genitalia and she talks about her sexual experiences and her experience of, of sexual pleasure. And she got a lot of critique from uh, 
various feminist writers among others who sort of said well if this is what you're talking about then you're quite privileged like is 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 this really where we are maybe we can talk about your vagina when we've solved like world hunger and uh wage gaps and female genital mutilation and and other things like that and i think that is quite uh that is quite telling that response because that is often the way that female sexual liberation it's not really taken seriously. It's seen as a quite a trivial concern, which I think goes back to the idea that women are just not as sexual as men. Because we have a lot of discussion in society about, um, like, for instance, all, all of the discussions that have been happening recently with the incel movement, for instance, uh, we have a lot of people who are talking about, oh, um, what should we do with these men who are sad and frustrated because they can't get women? And most people are not defending uh, the likes of, of, uh, of Elliot Rogers or, or other people that are actually going around killing, killing people. But there's still this sort of idea that male sexuality is a very potent force, no pun intended, that we need to create space for and we need to accommodate, whereas female uh, sexuality is usually seen as something that we can sort of uh, sideline and and not take seriously, and that we don't really need to to account for. And I think that's uh, I think that's problematic. And I think sexual liberation, especially for women, is is not a trivial concern. I think it's important. And going to the third area there that you highlighted as well the the idea of the sort of marginalized and deviant saying quite a lot about dominant culture i think those two areas can be tied into that very very much so my my book or my my phd dissertation was about a religious movement that at the height of its popularity which is now essentially has never had more than a couple of thousand of adherents in the world but and i'm not the first scholar to say this i think we can learn quite a lot from studying movements that at a superficial glance may seem quite fringy or or, or deviant or small in a lot of ways crowley's ideas epitomized some really crucial tensions and, and questions that have been occurring, I think, in the 20th century. And one of them is the link between sexuality and individual liberation, or how those two can be linked together, or whether they should be linked together, and, and the emphasis on the individual as the supreme authority. And zooming in slightly further onto the, uh, the Babylon discourse or interpretations of the goddess Babylon and how they've changed over the course of the 20th century, we can see all of those questions recurring as well. We can see um, people like Crowley saying that uh, women need to be given the right to be sexual. We need to create space for women to uh, be able to have this shameless, unapologetic sexuality. And moving forward to writings by uh, female devotees of Babylon in the last few decades, we also have women who are saying that, yes, all of that is really important, but we also need to make sure that this is not just a male fantasy and that it, this is actually something that reflects and is based around the desires and experiences of, of sexuality and their bodies that women actually have. So this mirrors these broader tensions that have been going on in in feminism and in discussions about feminine sexuality i think in society as a whole thanks so much that is um yeah i feel like i i just kind of want to uh agree with everything you said and and uh yeah just just uh highlight the importance I, f I just feel that yeah er, what you're um the points you're making just just feel so important right now and i feel like around um yeah just around um sort of this quality of like divine i feel like there's definitely this kind of divine feminine rising uh thing that's happening in our world and it feels very potent takes a lot of different forms uh some of them maybe more like new agey some of them uh, you know very righteous I, but i think um the the babylon aspect aspect of this uh it 
brings a sort of fierceness and um yeah i guess what what's the word fierceness and um yeah well i guess it's just it's like what you said taking taking female sexuality seriously mm-hmm. and it's like even that fra- that statement like sounds mundane on some level but it's like what's actually behind that is like so vibrant and and magical and political and and it's like uh i just the implications i think go far beyond uh, anything we could even kind of try to conjure up in a in a conversational form you know it's like the and that's the thing about babylon right it's like in some way this is about a um uh kind of energy that's mm-hmm. rising rising up beyond the kind of conceptual mind or beyond um the intellectual or beyond um basically like kind of going against a lot of what are kind of traditionally like patriarchal um forces and Mm. values which are like intellectualizing rationalizing this kind of um dominant like male domination literally and also kind of like masculine dominated worldview basically and Mm. so um yeah just i think uh, on all levels it just uh yeah i'm i'm so uh, inspired by what you're saying so thank you um all right let's keep going let's talk a little about jack parsons i feel like if there's anything more you want to say about crowley we could uh but it's sort of it's interesting to, for me to it was interesting for me to read your kind of little uh the section on contra- contrasting kind of the ways in which crowley parsons and kenneth grant uh three historical figures of the occult kind of frame this particular conceptualization of Babylon as a potentially transgressive or liberatory feminist force. And they all kind of have like kind of different elements that feel like they're they're highlighting. Um, so, yeah, anything more you want to say about Crowley or we could move on to, to Parsons and Grant, too? Sure. Um, I mean, I guess uh, the important thing to say about Crowley is that he sort of lays the foundation for the other two mm-hmm. writers, of course, on the subject of Babylon. But um, Parsons is really interesting. I mean, he's, I mean, everybody loves Jack Parsons, I think, to some extent, because he's got this very mythical, very tragic life story of, of, of being this brilliant genius who sort of laid the groundwork for modern rocket science, essentially, but then dying long before he really probably um, realized his full potential, maybe. I mean, there's no saying what he would have done if he had lived longer. And it's interesting to see that he's now sort of getting some more widespread attention as well with the, uh, I don't know if you've followed the TV series and, and everything, I haven't really, but but it's interesting to see how he's sort of, um, he's reaching a broader audience definitely these days. So Parsons was, I mean, he was a much less prolific writer than Crowley. He had a shorter lifespan uh, and less time to write. And he mostly worked for a living as well. So what we have of his writings is is much sparser and sort of, you get the sense that he didn't enjoy writing as much as Crowley necessarily did. He was more of a, a hands-on type of guy, I think. But but he was drawn to Thelema and he joined Crowley's Ordo Templi Orientis, or the OTO, in 1941. And a few years later, Parsons decided to do this ritual operation, the Babylon Working, which was aimed at manifesting Babylon on Earth as a human woman. And he wanted to create this this female female or feminine Thelemic messiah who would essentially liberate humanity and and end religious and and sexual repression. He saw this as, as very strongly connected to Christianity. He was very negative towards Christianity, just as Crowley had been before him. Uh, But Parsons connected Babylon to female emancipation, and he did that very explicitly as well. And he wrote that women rather than men would be the ones who would lead humanity into the new age and sort of manifest this new aeon of of freedom and individualism and all of these lovely things. And women would be the pioneers of this and the men who were smart enough to follow them would be along for the ride, essentially, but women would be the ones to do it. So 
that is really interesting. And there were some of those types of ideas around in the, uh, the early decades of the 20th century, which linked these sort of uh, revolutionary and oftentimes left-wing political ideas to sort of proto-feminist ideas as well. And there's quite a lot that indicates that Parsons would have been inspired by these ideas, which he, of course, mixes with, with Crowley's, um, Crowley's magical teachings and, and this this idea of Babylon as well. But Parsons, he, he, he performed the Babylon working, of course, with the help of L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, and also with Marjorie Cameron, who was his, his lover at the time and later became his wife. And what's interesting about her as well, and she's quite often overlooked in this context, but if we want to talk about the sort of broader spread of these ideas and how polemic ideas have had a broader cultural influence, Marjorie Cameron is really important because after Parsons' death, she went on to be this sort of iconic figure in the, uh, the LA underground art scene. And she was a, uh, a huge source of inspiration to people like Kenneth Anger, for instance. So she starred in Kenneth Anger's inauguration of the Pleasure Dome as the Scarlet Woman or as this sort of Babylon figure. And she was also a fantastic artist and she had this really interesting collaboration for, for decades after Parsons' death with all of these people who were sort of connected to the esoteric artistic avant-garde which in a lot of ways has been really important to um, spreading these ideas these teachings more broadly and one person who was a huge admirer of Marjorie Cameron and Jack Parsons as well of course was Kenneth Grant who was a British occultist and who was Crowley's secretary for a brief period of time very late in Crowley's life. And Grant was an initiate of Crowley's OTO, but he was also a student of Tantra. And based on Tantra, Grant uh, completely revaluated Crowley's teachings with regard to sexual magic. Uh, so Crowley basically, this is a whole podcast in itself, but Crowley's basic sex magical idea is that by by focusing on an idea and sort of charging it energetically and magically and, and focusing on it at the point of orgasm, you can achieve any worldly or, or spiritual end, essentially. And he had this idea of a sort of polarity of male and female, a sort of heterosexual polarity, where in the masculine genital fluids were the sort of active agent or the catalyst or the, the transmitter of this divine will coming from the male magician and the female genital fluids were more of a sort of receptive vessel kind of receiving and, and nourishing this divine spark provided by the male ritual practitioner and grant thought that this was completely uh completely rubbish essentially based on his studies of tantra so grant said that crowley got this wrong and that the real sort of important magical substance is the the female the magically charged female genital fluids which he calls the carlas so grant articulated this whole idea of a primordial ancient magical tradition which he calls the typhonian tradition which goes back thousands of years and originates in Central Africa, and which he believed was centered on the veneration of the divine feminine, of the female genitals and the female sexual fluids. And for Grant, who draws inspiration from a lot of different traditions besides Crowley, and he also draws on fiction and um, eventually UFO law and surrealism and all these uh, interesting things. But for Grant, Babylon and the Scarlet Woman is one of the names that he uses to describe this, uh, this primordial divine female principle, as well as the priestess who embodies her in ritual, who is, in Grant's view, really sort of the, 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 the really important magical practitioner because she transmits these, these sexual fluids that are essentially kind of a link to the divine feminine. So what I think is really interesting about Grant is that his, I mean, he wrote a lot more than Parsons did and his, uh, his vision of the Typhonian tradition, which he sketches in these nine books called Typhonian trilogies, it's a lot less politically engaged than what Parsons wrote. Uh, so, so Grant is quite often overlooked, I think, in discussions about kind of feminist or proto-feminist ideas in 20th century occultism. But Grant was actually one of the first, or he was very early anyway, to 
explicitly and systematically critique what he saw as the sort of male-centric focus of Crowley's system of sexual magic. So Grant actually anticipated a critique of Crowley that has become much more widespread in recent decades. And uh, even if Parsons expressed some of these sort of feminist ideas, at least in the writings we have preserved by Parsons, he doesn't explicitly critique Crowley on that point, which Grant does. And Grant also influenced some sort of second wave feminist ideas about female embodiment, female genital fluids, menstruation, things like that. There's a really interesting connection to a couple of British poets called Peter Redgrove and Penelope Shuttle, who wrote a book called The Wife's Wound about menstruation. And they actually quote Grant in that book in a few places. And, and Peter Redgrove uh, is known to have looked into Grant's work as well at, at various points in time when he was writing his books. And the, the wise wound has been really, really widespread and quite broadly read in a lot of different branches of the sort of second wave women's movement, which are not as sort of fringy and, and esoteric as, as Grant's writings are often seen to be. So, so I think that's, that's really important about these, um, these different writers that they have sort of connections that are um that are broader that you don't always think about yeah this is um it's it's interesting because i think they're so i mean it's really interesting that this like yeah these these people were, like were on some level quite quite radical for their time i think in particular yeah. and that's mm. what strikes me is like you know this is we're not talking about like last year you know some of these ideas no, right. and, and it that comes through both in their sort of like point aspects where they kind of miss the boat or like aren't quite uh like yeah. do do seem a little outdated or or um they're kind of not uh quite as um cutting edge or 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 forward thinking as you know some radical feminist thinkers are today for sure and mm -hmm. you know obviously you know these are yeah, we're, we're white men we're talking about. And, and so it's like, we, I think it's yeah, it's just really it feels. Um, yeah, you you it seems like we're, we're holding both both really uh, in a balanced way, like kind of the critique and also highlighting that there's some really um, interesting ideas that they that they were putting forth that go beyond just the sort of esoteric, like they're very socially potent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, they are. They are quite radical in a lot of ways. And I think one thing that's really, that goes back to what you were saying before as well, is that this sort of idea of, of the divine feminine and of this really like, really taking seriously this idea of female sexual liberation and that we can't really, I think, even fathom fully what that would mean, uh, where we are now. I think that, um, that is very clear in the work of these various writers as well, because all of them, when they sort of approach this, this symbol of Babylon, all of them, even going back to Crowley, uh, are kind of like, wow, what is this? What even, what is going on here? And how am I going to describe it? And all of their descriptions are really sort of, um, show this sort of awe or almost fear for what they're, experiencing and, and and seeing as well and i think that is really uh, i think that's really interesting yeah yeah well you know i think for for listeners who uh, are inspired and want to kind of dive into some of this material further i mean peter gray's book really highlights that aspect mm. <laughs> you know and i think it's mm. like um the the t awe the fear the mm. destruction the yeah. terror and uh, yeah, like on some level, right? Like uh, we're talking about destruction of ego. And I think that whole connection with Tantra is really interesting. There seems like there's yeah. a lot of mm. thematic, you know, working with energy and power and, um, yeah. and all that. So, but yeah, there's, you know, it's also the destruction of, of, you know, the, some of these forces in our world that are um, causing such harm and, uh, yeah and uh, like killing killing the planet and and mm. people you know so it's like um that ferocity and um and awe inspiring fear inspiring is uh warranted it seems mm. in a lot of ways yeah 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. So it seems like to this point, uh, somebody might be listening and be thinking this is all well and good, but it also sounds like um, kind of gender binary, uh, like privileging a, a sense of gender binary. We've been talking a lot about um, men and women and um, not don't really haven't really left uh, or explored uh, mm. room in between or beyond. Mm. So at the same time, though, you you write that several contemporary interpretations of Babylon question binary and biological uh, conceptions of gender, constructing femininity in ways that are explicitly inclusive of transgender and genderqueer experience. So let's get into that a little bit. Can you can you talk a little about that area and the ways in which Babylon can be understood in that way? Yeah, definitely. So one thing that I really wanted to do when I was was working on on my doctoral dissertation, I I wanted to see not only the the historical origins of this idea of Babylon, but also how it's developed over time. So I worked with both historical archival material and, and printed material and ethnographic sources and interviews. So part of my investigation was to study and, and talk to people who relate to Babylon as a symbol or as a divine force today and to see how they view this symbol and how that is different from when Crowley first started talking about her. And one thing that we can see very clearly um, is how the development of feminism, for instance, and I've talked a little bit about that, uh, has made an impact on the Babylon discourse and on the Thelemic movement, but also how the LGBTQ movement has made an impact on just sort of the language and the terminology that is available. And this is also, this is also coincided with a greater number of different types of, of voices talking about Babylon and drawing on this symbol to critique what they see as a dominance of, of primarily male voices within previous writings on occultism and thelema and sexual magic, and also discussing what gender means from a broader variety of perspectives, what it means to be male or female or not male or female, but genderqueer or non-binary identified, what it means to be straight or not straight or, or gay or bisexual uh, and what that means for magical practice and what that means for this symbol of Babylon and I think one thing that has happened in recent decades is that this sort of community has become much more aware of these issues and much more sort of um, adept at using this this terminology to talk about this this much broader spectrum of gender identity and, and sexual identity. And I mean, interestingly, Crowley was himself in many ways quite a gender bending character. He writes in several texts that he has perfected both masculine and feminine qualities in himself, that this is also reflected in his physique, that, that it's an initiatory ideal to transcend male and female. He was openly bisexual at a time when that wasn't socially uh, accepted at all. He had a female alter ego whom he also uh, did sex magical rituals as and that also ties into his whole idea about Babylon because in this idea of crossing the abyss Babylon is I mean in one way she is this thing this this sort of great feminine other who's external to the self and that you unite with or uh, destroy yourself to unite with but in another way she is also the emblem of the attitude that is required to get there so there is also crossing the abyss is also in some way undergoing this kind of initiatory metaphysical uh, reorientation towards the feminine and Crowley actually writes about this in in some texts as well that in some sense the person who has managed to cross the abyss is kind of on a metaphysical spiritual level feminine so there is a bit of gender transgression or, or subversion going on there but of course Crowley didn't have the language that we have today to talk about things like uh, gender queerness or or, uh, or 
uh, or transness or, or all of these things. So one thing that I saw when talking to present day esotericists who relate to Babylon and, and reading their writings as well is this sort of increasing engagement with issues like, okay, so Babylon is connected to femininity or femaleness, but maybe not everyone who identifies as female has the same experience of that or has the same body. Not everyone who identifies as a woman has a uterus or menstruates or give birth, gives birth or, or breastfeeds. So what does, does Babylon or the idea of Babylon mean for um, if we are more inclusive with uh, when we talk about what it means to be a woman or what it means to be feminine? What does Babylon mean for transgender women, for instance? And there's still not that much esoteric writing on that idea, but it's, it's beginning to appear. And I have talk to people uh, over the course of my research who have, have talked about these uh, ideas. And I think it's really, really interesting. You can definitely see if you look at just the occult community in, in recent years, how there's been a greater proliferation of, of literature on issues such as queerness and, and transgender, just in relation to, to esotericism and magic more broadly. So I definitely think that is an issue that is um, becoming increasingly highlighted. And I think that's, that's really, really interesting and very, very important. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. And I, I was, yeah, I think I'm, I've, it's a really interesting aspect of kind of, um, deities and gods and goddesses and in, in different esoteric traditions, you know, in general, I think, uh, it seems like there's often a kind of, binary expression when it comes to this stuff and then you you kind of hear maybe oh but it, it's not quite like that and and it's kind of both like uh it's it's true but it's also like a, a way that a tradition you know kind of explains a way that something that is um, yeah that is actually bi binary but i but i feel like yeah I, I just think it's it's interesting as we as a society uh you know this conversation and 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 this kind of uh, unfolding of mm -hmm. you know i think what in a lot of ways it feels like uh really like the de deconstructing and dissolving of of gender in a lot of in a lot of ways that um yeah yeah how 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 do how do these conceptions that um yeah how do we how do we kind of change what's our changing and evolving relationship to them and um yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i think that's a really um that's a really important question that's kind of unfolding and one of the um i mean one of the theorists that i was most inspired by in my dissertation is a french feminist theorist theorist luce irigari who talks about this from partly from the perspective of psychoanalysis. And she says that basically where we're at at this point is like we don't have a concept of, of sexual difference. We don't have a concept of femininity as something distinct from masculinity. Essentially, mm. we have masculinity and then we have femininity, which is consistently defined in relation to masculinity. So in order to get anywhere, Irigari says, we need to develop a concept of femininity that mm. isn't equatable to masculinity, mm. but is not defined in relationship to it. Mm. And what she says, which I think is interesting, is that it's not necessarily as easy as to just say like, okay, let's do away with these concepts of masculine and feminine and just have something that's neutral instead. Because uh, before we get to the point where we can conceive of something that's not masculine and not reducible to the masculine the neutral is always implicitly going to become masculine which i mean there are a lot of examples of this when in in various branches of sort of liberal theology in the world religions where uh, people try to conceive of what has been sort of a, a, a male divine creator figure and and to say that oh maybe it's not male at all maybe it's androgynous yeah, but it kind of still <laughs> right. usually becomes envisioned as more male than female. And I think, I mean, Irigari has been accused of sort of perpetuating this very binary idea of masculine and feminine as well. And I think uh, to some extent we can kind of read her ideas a little bit irreverently and kind of take mm. one part of it that is that maybe we need more 
symbols and more concepts for imagining gender and maybe we're just not there yet that we yeah. know uh what a really diverse spectrum of gender or or uh sexual identity could look like mm -hmm. and maybe we'll get there eventually yeah yeah totally there's something to me too about that's just i'm thinking about like in terms of um you know sometimes if if particularly in a this goddess of sexuality uh mm -hmm. where we're you know the the instinct might be to position ourselves in terms of um like it, either you one would be you know sort of become her or one would want her or kind of long long for her you know and and some sense that that's like a very black and white distinction yeah. and that yeah. like uh you know it's it's it can doesn't have to be that way you know it can for for a, even if it's it's a you know a man uh, who is attracted to women it could also very much be about um opening to that divine feminine within and hopefully it is about that because uh i think that's like a, such an essential part of mm -hmm. this whole kind of um what like Bab this figure of babylon brings to to our world right now and so um yeah definitely yeah, and i mean for women as well who um when like uh for lesbian women or bisexual women and i've definitely um had conversations like that and, and read texts mm. like that over the course of my research as well, mm -hmm. where it is, it is both desire and identification. Yes. You long for Babylon in a sexual erotic way, but you also identify with her and the lines mm. between those different things are kind of blurred. So, yeah. Yeah. Great. So could you tell us a little about the Thelemic Women's History Project and um, what it is? We've talked about Thelema a bit and and Crowley and you're you're um, embarked upon this very cool interesting project that uh, that I I think yeah I hope I hope people are kind of in this community like know about it or aware of it but I I feel like um, it's so interesting that you're doing this and yeah I, f I feel like people would be really excited to to know more yeah uh, so. What I'm doing now, this is my, my postdoctoral research project. It goes for three years. I started in June 2018 and it runs until June 2021. And it's funded by the Swedish Research Council, which is a government agency. And the real title of the project is Power Through Closeness, Female Authority and Agency in a Male-Led New Religion, but that's long and awkward. Mm. So on social media where I'm kind of trying to promote this a little bit because as you as you kind of hinting at there a lot of the people who are interested in this are kind of in the thelemic community i think they're not just academics so they're not going to be at religious studies conferences and, and things like that all the time so i'm trying to promote it on social media as well which is where i'm calling it the thelemic women's history project which is what it is it's a study of the history of women in Thelema, essentially, in the 20th century. And going back to this idea of the seemingly marginal telling us important things about broader cultural trends, I want to, like with this project, I want to contribute to how we understand and uh, the terminology that we use to theorize women's leadership in new religious movements. Because a lot of research shows that religious movements in their emerging faces or new religious movements tend to provide more opportunities for female leadership than established religions, especially in their early phases. And I think that's also um, that's something that can be nuanced a little bit, but still uh, is an interesting point to start off with, I think. Uh, so most of the biographies about Crowley and the Thelemic movement, I would say, tend to focus quite a lot on the men, of course, a lot about Alistair Crowley and he was important, certainly, uh, but also people like uh, like Jack Parsons, Wilfred Smith, and, and other figures who were really important to the development of the movement. But the women don't tend to get a lot of attention typically in the biographies that we that we have. 
but one of the really remarkable things about the occult orders that emerged in the early, the late 19th and the early 20th century is that many of them accepted women, not only as members, but also as, as leaders. And many of them were really important vehicles for female religious uh, authority and even political authority during this time. And we see this in movements such as spiritualism in, in the Theosophical Society uh, and, and, and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and other groups around this time as well. But we also see it in Thelema and around Crowley. During Crowley's lifetime, there were also all of these important female figures who held these very, sometimes very fundamental uh, roles and were really central to making day-to-day -day operations function. They were his secretaries, they transcribed his writings, they they led rituals, they sort of organized the whole Thelemic community. And I wanted to understand, and I want to understand with this project, how the women around Crowley and in the Thelemic movement in the decades after Crowley's death functioned as spiritual practitioners and leaders and what particular challenges and opportunities that they had as women uh because i think also in 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 a lot of ways their their opportunities for agency and for authority were also affected by the fact that they were women yeah. so what i'm doing is using uh, as a case study i'm using the lives of of three historical women in who have been important to Thalima, or really four. Uh, and they are Leah Hersig, who was Crowley's, one of Crowley's scarlet women and his disciple and uh, lover in the 1920s. She was with him at the Abbey of Thalima. She co-founded the Abbey of Thalima with Crowley in uh, Cefalu, Sicily in 1920. And she was very, very important for a few years. And until she wasn't when Crowley found a new Scarlet Woman. Essentially, she continued to practice as a Thalamite for several years, but eventually she grew disillusioned with the movement and sort of distanced herself from it and also disavowed Crowley and uh, severed ties with him. The second woman that I'm looking into is Jane Wolfe, who was Crowley's longtime student and one of his longest standing friends. She was his student at the Abbey of the Lima and she was also, uh, so her sig mentored her in a sense as well, we can say. And after that, Jane Wolfe, who was originally American and came to Europe to, to be with Crowley and the other Thelemites, she went back to the United States and she was in the United States really central to transmitting Thelema to the US and building the Thelemic milieu there. And the third figure that I'm looking into is um, a woman who was a student of, of, of Jane Wolfe, Phyllis Seckler, who was also important in terms of consolidating the Thelemic movement in the United States and in helping to reestablish what is now the, the Ordo Templi Orientis, the OTO, Crowley's, uh, Crowley's OTO, in the US. And the fourth woman that I'm looking at um, is Marjorie Cameron, who was Jack Parsons' uh, lover and wife and, and partner in the Babylon working, and also, uh, incidentally, a magical student of Jane Wolfe. So Jane Wolfe tutored her for a few years after Parsons' death in magic. So I think these three or really four women are interesting because they highlight in, in different ways um, different roles that women took in the Thelemic movement over uh, over the course of the 20th century and also how gender and uh, the fact that they were women sort of intersected in different ways with their their possibility uh, or their opportunity for acting as as leaders and authority figures mm -hmm. and what forms and expressions are are is the project going to take is are, are is it going to be a book are there other kinds of um ways that is going to manifest yes uh at least one book uh so one there's going to be one book that's going to be focused on sort of um the life stories of these women their biographies and how they intersect with each other because i think that is really interesting and sort of the the tying together their various life stories and their roles in the Thelemic movement. There's also 
going to be a few um, peer review articles geared more towards the academic community, which are going to focus on the, uh, the theoretical tools that I think can be extracted from this material, how we can sort of learn conceptual, conceptual and, and um, theoretical frameworks from this material that can be relevant to theorizing female leadership in in religious movements and new religious movements more broadly. Uh, there's also going to be any number of conference presentations and of course I'm going to try as much as possible to continually keep people updated about what's going on in in the project on on social media on facebook and instagram but there's always uh there's always a big problem with it as well because a lot of the materials that i'm looking at are under copyright or sort of semi under copyright so you know i can't really publish as much as i would like to share with people before yeah uh so there's a there's a little bit of a fine line of sort of keeping people posted on what's going on without actually giving away some of the things mm. that are not mine to give away. Yeah, so to yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, uh, we'll at the end we'll definitely make sure people know how to find um, all of that. And uh, it's yeah, it's just so exciting. I feel like it's such an amazing uh, offering to both scholarly and and uh, cold esoteric communities. Um, so yeah, yeah, I feel like people are, people are going to be really Thank excited you. to know about this, uh, if they didn't already. And you're, yeah, I'm just also curious. You're, uh, so you're, is it, you're based out right now out of the, the center for his, the history of hermetic philosophy and related currents. Yeah. Yeah. What, so for what the kinds first... of things happen there? Yeah. Uh, it's a really interesting place to be. And this is where I'm going to be for the first two years of the project. So I've got uh, about another year and then a little bit to go before I go back to Sweden and okay. hopefully do the heavy lifting of, of writing everything that needs to be written. But for the first two years, I'm in Amsterdam at the Center for History of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents, which is one of the world's leading centers for uh, academic research and education in the area of Western esotericism studies. And I mean, of course, it's a tremendous privilege. It's it's a great learning experience to be in the center of where so much of the important groundwork in establishing the academic study of esotericism, uh, where that foundation has been laid. It's, uh, it's, it's a really, really great experience. And there's a lot of interesting things going on right now. For instance, we are preparing for the seventh uh, biennial conference of the European Society for the Study of Western Esotericism. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is very strongly linked to the Amsterdam Centre as well. And this conference is going to take place in Amsterdam this summer, and it also coincides with the 20th anniversary of the centre. So it's going to be the largest ESWE conference to date and has a very promising lineup of speakers, among other things. I'm chairing a panel on Alistair mm. Crowley and uh, techniques for altered states of consciousness, mm. which is... that's. Uh, altered states of consciousness and, and things related to that is the theme for the conference. So it's, it's a really, I think it's an ideal place to be for this particular project. It's definitely, um, it's definitely been great. And of course the other researchers at the center are, are doing things that are uh, different from, from what I've doing, but there is some overlap with, with some of my colleagues in, in Amsterdam and we've had some some really great conversations mm. uh, about research and, and other things so it's mm. it's been fantastic yeah it sounds like the place to be that's uh, that's so cool and uh, yeah I'm just increasingly realizing how uh, how much uh, in the in the realm of the of studies uh, of esotericism and uh, and magic uh, it seems to happen in europe and there's about there's at least three conferences that i would love to go to in the next <laughs> yeah. you know four yeah. months that are all in europe and and uh yeah i'm kind of just like how do i make this happen yeah. so um yeah well that's that's really exciting i um i i hope that you know if uh people can get to that conference then that that would be fantastic and you know there's also um one of my other previous guest Vanessa Sinclair uh, is putting on this, um, this kind of like um, psychoanalysis and esotericism conference in Italy. Um, 
and then that looks fabulous yeah well. it looks really fabulous um and i'm also uh, aware of the trans states conference in right. uh, yes in the fall so anyhow people can can look into these things and uh, and if not uh, if they can't make it or if they whether or not they can make it um mm -hmm. uh, how can people learn more about the project and we'll put all these things in the show notes too but just for people listening who want to just write write down uh, uh social media accounts and and uh, uh websites and such yes uh well anyone who's interested in my my current postdoctoral project can follow Thelemic Women's History Project on, that's my Facebook page. And on Instagram, it's called Thelemic Women's History. That is where I'm uh, posting these updates about what I'm doing now. For anyone who's interested in my research more broadly or keeping track of publications, I also have a page on academia.edu, which has all of those uh, technical things as well. Great. Well, Manon, thank you so much. This has been a really um, fabulous conversation. I'm so uh, delighted to ha have the opportunity to talk with you. And oh, and when does the when does the book come out? The uh, the you current know? book, uh, yeah, the yeah, one. Um, October. Okay. Is the date that I've been giving from the from the publishers. Okay. So Great. So this is a teaser. Crossed. Yeah. <laughs> So I, this will whet people's appetites, and and they can have a f few months to um, to get excited about it, and then um, and then the fall. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I thought this was really great as well. 